Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, your weekly discussion of motoring news. This is episode 567 on Tuesday, the 27th of February, 2024. Hello, I'm Alan. Hello, I'm Andrew. And this week, we'll be looking forward to one organization learning about emissions. In new, new car news, we wail, gnash our teeth at sad, sad news. And in points of interest, we stock up on engine oil for our list of the week. I have never in my life wailed or gnashed my teeth. I just want to make that quite clear to everyone listening. That's how bad the news is he is this week. Anyway, follow up before he starts again. And we asked a couple of weeks ago when Volvo said that they were going to reduce their support of Polestar, what that actually meant. And we're beginning to find out. They have announced that they are going to reduce their stake in shares from 48 to 18%, which is approximately 850 million euros in worth. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they are still. <laughs> going to work operationally very close together they're going to build stuff in the same factories just on different lines and develop together etc etc this just seems to be a financial machination really doesn't it so it really Mm. it's rather than polestar being owned by volvo being owned by geely they're both moving out to be owned by geely and volvo is receiving money for its previous and in return for its previous investment and nurturing of polestar and I think Volvo need the cash. Yes, I'm sure that instead of getting cash by other ways from Geely, then this will be the way that they do it. Yeah. It's not panic. It's not anybody's done badly, although it does say in this uh, Electrive article about how there is some mutterings of Polestar not quite doing as well as everyone hoped, but it's a tough economic outlook at the moment globally, which so many people talking about cars seem to forget. Yes, absolutely. Tightenings of belts and people going, well, actually, this car will do me another couple of years. Yeah. Do you want to take us to some good news, though, in the UK? Yes. Luton, in it. Stellantis Luton plant is going to produce electric vans from early 2025, I guess. I don't know how much of a surprise this would really work out to be, but I suppose they could have decided to build them somewhere else. Oh, well, Italy, probably, if the Italian PM had got her way. (laughs) Oh, well, probably, yes, yes. (laughs) This move follows Stellantis and its £100 million full electrification of Ellesmere Port. The idea is that a limited number of medium-sized vans will be produced on the adapted production line. The production line in Luton will continue to build internal combustion engine vans and also EVs. Vivaro Electric, the Peugeot e-expert, Citroen e-dispatch and the Fiat e-scudo. Why is it not the Evavaro just to make it the same across the whole board? But I suppose, I don't know. There we are. Mark Noble, the plant director, says that this is a fitting way to mark Luton's 120th anniversary. And it doesn't look a day over 150. <laughs> oh, don't be so nasty. No, it's fine. It's, it's, it's good to build a lot of vehicles in Luton still. It's good that it's... It is a, I don't want to go down the whole PR sounding, it's world leading, but it is one of those factories which does constantly seem to to produce good and popular vehicles that that seem to sell. Yeah. And I think it's also helped with the agreement at the 11th hour uh, between the EU and the UK about rules of origin as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The Stellantis uh, UK boss, Maria Grazia Divino, did, however, call on the government to offer support to car makers in the UK as they move towards full electrification and to simulate market demand for EVs, according to the Autocar article that's linked in the show notes. 
But she's been busy with other stuff as well, hasn't she? She has indeed. And there has been some changes at senior management level for Stellantis UK. Basically, a bunch of people are shifting around. Some are moving to uh, more group roles and their replacements are being moved in from within the brand. And also with the fact that uh, Steve Beattie has come back from Volvo and Neo back to Stellantis to help. There's going to be a link in the show notes to an AM online article because there is lots of roles being swapped around here. But what I find interesting is that, or how proactive Maria Grazia Davino has been since coming into post. First of all, she quickly stopped the move to agency, which was a very big step for the group considering how loud they'd been about, this is what we're going to be doing. This is us now. That seems to be quite a popular choice at the minute among some manufacturers. So we're not really going to talk about it in detail, but JLR, for example, have decided they're going to move away from their agency model that they were going to try and push. I don't know whether that's because the way as well there is market forces have then made them realize how exposed they might be. Whereas mm. if, because I don't understand it fully. So I'm just, I'm speculating here. I have, I have no idea, but if they do the agency, are they exposed more as a manufacturer financially than if it is the dealership as a traditional model, they carry more of the risk? Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know the answer to that either, I'm afraid. I'd have to speak to retail people to understand that. Yeah. But that's just something that leapt to my mind when you see all these companies going, oh, there's just a bit of a pause in this, a bit of a pause. But I am impressed with what, what uh, Mr. Vino is doing at Stellantis because there's a lot of work that needs to go on to rebuild the relationship with their dealer network. It's reminded again in this article about how the dealer attitude survey found that every single one of them was fighting for last place. They were rated as poor value. Hmm. That has to be turned around or Stellantis are going to really struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Next up, advertising standards news. Yay, we all love this. The latest mad proclamation. Well, the latest mad proclamation from the Advertising Standards Agency, uh, the bit that I found is that it has a new, what I'm going to term, uh, autoclipe. <laughs> they have their own active ad monitoring system, which uses artificial intelligence to proactively search for online ads that might break the rules as part of the wider piece of work of zero emissions claims. And that's according to Fleet News and Gareth Roberts, who wrote this story. The advert that flagged the machine learning code was all-new Electric Explorer, redefining adventure. The ultimate all-electric SUV is here, the Explorer. Redefine the meaning of adventure, the ultimate exploration vehicle. Find out more and discover the range of features. Zero emissions driving, fast charging, driver assistance tech. Don't worry, ladies and gentlemen and car companies out there, we are available for voiceovers. I can even do it when I don't have a blocked nose. It turns out that the Advertising Standards Authority challenged whether the claim zero emissions driving misleadingly represented the vehicle's environmental impact. In the end, it was decided this was okay. So despite previous zero emissions claims being poo-pooed and being kicked out because things aren't zero emissions, you know, there's obviously there are some emissions at the point of generation. There are emissions at the point of manufacture. Mm -hmm. There are still things like tire particles. And things which are classed as emissions can be... Now, that's where I have a problem with this ruling, because it says zero emissions driving. Yeah. 
and tyre particles only happen when you're driving. Yes, and braking as well, so brake dust as well, if we put it on that. But somehow zero emissions driving was, was deemed okay. I think this is incorrect. And once oh, yeah. somebody complains to ASA correctly to say, well, then why is the new Euro 7 test going to look at tyre emissions and dust particles? And this is not to say, by the way, for anyone who wants to leap up and down, I am not saying that I am against EVs or anything like this. We are just purely talking... What we're trying to raise here is the stupidity around the semantic yes. hoops we are all having to try to jump through yep. so that some plonk doesn't get offended as they go back to their cork-tired bicycle made of wood and bamboo. Exactly. All the language wrapped around this now has become so stupid because people are choosing to be outraged. Yeah. I blame Jeremy Vine, personally. But then I blame Jeremy Vine for a lot of things. Anything related to this or just specifically? Just, no, just generally. Gen- gen- just okay, generally. Fair enough. D- uh, d- Jeremy Vine and the day they introduced waterless urinals. There you go. That's what I blame the world's <laughs> ills on. Okay. Right. Um, I, I think this is all very tricky. I think I can see where the menu, where Ford is coming from with what they're saying. I can see, to an extent, I can see where the advertising standards agency is coming from. But it's all just a horrible mishmash and just awful. Just try not to say use the word zero emissions, folks. I know it's hard, but... The only way Ford could have been correct there, technically, with the semantics, is to say zero tailpipe emissions driving. That's the only one that you can get away with. That's the only one that they could say. And I'm convinced someone will go back to ASA and say, this is you're incorrect, and that's what they have to say from now on. Yeah. Um, so now we make these adverts just even more tedious than they already are. It's like the, the podcast, you know, Google Podcasts or whatever it is, Amazon Podcasts. You can pay to listen to podcasts without adverts. Podcasts may contain adverts uh, in, the t- in the talk at the end. Yeah, Spotify do that as well. If you do Spotify Premium, it doesn't include, it only, it's only adverts for music, not for podcasts. So if you can still listen to podcasts, you'll get an ad stuck in there as well. Obviously, this is a good advertising-free zone. Yes. Just remember that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take us to court now. Not for us, but this is the news that Slough Business Onyx Performance has been convicted for failing to show that a vehicle it modified would not be used on the public road. Now, I was not aware that the company had to ensure this. Yeah, I uh, wonder about that line. It should be would not be suitable for use on the public road or could not be used on the public road. They're saying that they had to ensure that it wouldn't be used on the road because it was not road legal, thanks to the... They stuck a, an exhaust on, is basically what they did. Well, no, it's not so much sticking an exhaust on, and it's the, the, remo- the removal of a catalytic converter and the installation of a pot bag map. Yeah, but they stuck... In, yeah, 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 yeah. But part of that is sticking the exhaust on, a, a changed exhaust, so the car sounded louder. Uh, this is the second company. AET Motorsports in November were also convicted for a similar offence. The problem here is the removal of the catalytic converter not, and the pop bangness, which requires the removal of the catalytic converter, not the fact that the exhaust is slightly noisier than normal, by the way. I would just like to point that one out as a person who plays with cars. I just feel this sort of, I mean, I, I know it's, oh, there's obviously legal precedence, but it feels a bit dodgy, this. I presume it's because it's knowingly breaking the law rather than yeah. stopping a, you from buying a car that could break the law. Yeah, that's what it is. It's because it's knowingly breaking the law. And then also they, they then go on and say, well, it's antisocial, but that's not really the thing. Oh, just shut up about that. Plenty of sake. other cars which come as standard with the ability to go pop, pop, pop. That's just the usual, oh, oh boy, racers are evil nonsense. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. Should we move on from the story? Yes, please. Take us to something. Ooh. Yes, fuel UK fuel prices. It's a monthly visit. <laughs> I always enjoy this story. Uh, UK fuel prices price rise, prices rise uh, again after months of decline. Uh, so whilst there is still plenty of padding in the price per liter of of fuel from That's one way of putting it, I was trying to see if I could alliterate the next sentence and then decided that that would just be overly cheesy and so moved on from it. Prices have have risen again despite the fact that there is already a buffer zone in there where the, all of the retailers are making significantly more money than they did a couple of years ago. But of course, the prices rise quickly and then come down very, very slowly. So over the last three weeks, the cost of petrol has increased by about 3.2 pence per litre to a total of about 143.4 pence. Diesel has jumped 4 pence per litre. Uh, this is being blamed on the challenges in the Red Sea uh, and tankers having to take the longer route right around Africa, and that's pushing uh, pushing the prices up. Retails have been trading above $80 a barrel for the last four weeks, having traded well below that, uh, inverted commas, for the previous seven weeks, says the Autocar article linked in the show notes. RAC said drivers are still losing out due to the retails taking that bigger margin I've already mentioned, and the supermarket forecourt prices have stood at an average markup of 10 pence per litre. Uh, as opposed to six pence per litre in 2019. Yeah, there we go. Lovely. Yes, all good news. Well, talking of other questionable business tactics, allegedly, the BBC has uh, investigated. Well, now we. Okay, let me tell you the headline first, and then we'll explain why. We're going to have to be very, very careful here. We've already yeah, agreed. No, this is a. This why is a, we're including this article because we can see this one being picked up and shouted about and there are nuances to it. The BBC has done an investigation and their headline is car insurance quotes higher in ethnically diverse areas. What they did is what they claim was they've collected thousands of quotes based on identical driver information but with different addresses. And they go on to say that areas with a high number of people from ethnic minorities saw higher prices, even when road accident and crime levels were similar. The insurance industry body said ethnicity was not a factor in pricing. Mm. However, the citizens of Vice said that the findings added to evidence of an ethnicity penalty. Right. Yeah. Before we all jump up and down and go, the insurance industry is racist. There are things to consider. Yeah. First of all, we don't have all the full details of what they did. The example they're showing here in the, the article that is linked in the show notes is from Birmingham. And they pick two areas where the people have the same job, same age. It's basically the same people, but they're just in different areas. And there is a difference in the price because in quote A, it is £1,975 a year, and in quote B, it's 2796 And the only element they show that is different in the two areas is the ethnic population percentage change for black, Asian, and minority. Yeah. However, there will be a multitude of other factors that come into these things. For example, I bet if you went to, and we were discussing this beforehand, if you went to an area in Liverpool which does not have very much 
black, Asian and minority ethnic population in comparison to some other cities and did this, you would find changes in the quotes because of other factors that affect those areas. I'm not saying that this doesn't happen to some degree or other. Not necessarily saying that this is wrong, but that's just it might not include all of the dimensions that cause those quotes to be different, including historical factors in that particular area, etc., etc. Yeah. Do remember that I regularly recommend the book, and I'm going to have to edit myself here, Calling Bull****. First time I've done that in eight years. Whoa. Because it is very good at pointing out that whilst stuff may look correct, we need to investigate further on the claims that are being made. Mm. And like I said, I am not suggesting that this isn't true and that some areas are not unfairly hit or people are not unfairly hit. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we have to tread with a bit of caution as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, the insurance industry is not going to come out and go, oh, yeah, damn, you've caught us. We're racist. Yeah. <laughs> and that's never going to happen. Things which are incredibly unlikely to happen. That That's pretty high up the list. It's up there with you going to an airport. So are you a terrorist? Oh, no. If I hadn't been asked at baggage, I'd have got away with it. Yeah, exactly. So do bear that in mind when you see this being bandied about, which I expect it will be on social media and stuff. It, it is something to be aware of, something to consider and hopefully this can be further investigated more robustly Mm. by others to see if there is a pattern and therefore cut out unfair practices by an industry if they are doing it yes exactly should we move on to something a bit lighter better so uh, yorkshire national parks are going to add 80 new public ev chargers in conjunction with bmw they will be they'll be adding those charges at some new key locations. I'm not saying there's a disparity between the south and the north of the UK, but it's major headlines when there's 18 being put in the north. I know. Well, <laughs> I, I think the point is that it's being put in the the, the national parks. So yes, this is this is good news. By the way, I'm not disparaging this either. <laughs> it is one of those things. You kind of. I don't know, maybe I'm about to sound like a BBC report here and say, well, if you drive an EV, you're probably more likely to do some form of outdoor activity type of things. The early adopters are probably of a demographic that are likely to do something like this, yes. That's the wording I was looking for, that one. Yes, that. So it makes a lot of sense, really, uh, to be able to, yeah. to do this kind of thing. That's good news. I mean, more that go in, the better, obviously. Yeah. This is this is something we bang on about all the time, uh, and hopefully we get better at putting the right ones in the right areas as well, uh, particularly as the rollout of EVs increases and more and more of the population get hold of them, yep. especially as the number of people who will not have home charging facilities increases as that naturally happens. It says here in this line, uh, in this, this article from EV Powered, uh, it says an estimated 93 million visits to the UK's national parks are made by car each year. And BMW says it wants to ensure the sites offer more options for those choosing to drive. It's very true. It'd be better if more people weren't necessarily having to drive into national parks, though. But, you know, public transport being what it is, uh, that mm. one's a bit tricky. Uh, isn't there, we talked about this a, a, couple of, a good couple of years ago. Mm. But the, in the Lake District, they're using Twizzies, aren't they? Um, you can do sort of like a park and ride. Type yeah, I thing. don't know if that still is still happening, but it was possible to rent a Twizzy and use that mm. for getting around. Yeah, 
those little micro EVs that are coming to the UK, that might be a nice yeah. one to use in those certain circumstances as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right, I'm going to stick with uh, EVs, and this is the news that the UK government is continuing the subsidy for electrified taxis until April 2025. They are, however, reducing it down from 7,500 to 6,000 per vehicle, but they have, up to now, made more than 50 million available to support the purchase of over 9,000 electrified taxis. It's 50 million pounds, by the way, not 50 million taxis. What did I say? Did I not you, say fifty million pounds? No, you missed out Obviously pounds not. from every single number, but never mind. Oh, sorry, everybody. Yeah, fifty million pounds, which has supported nine thousand electrified taxis during the running of the plug-in taxi grant program, which is such a snappy title and trips off the tongue so easily. Yeah, it's, it's got a great acronym too. But this is good news because this is targeting high-density urban areas to help clean up the air and make more sustainable transport around that. So this is good news. It is. Which takes us to a Guilt Minute, uh, which, of course, is always good news. Guilt Minute is the quick break in the show where we ask for a tad of financial support to keep the lights on the hosting running. If you feel the motoring podcast is worth a small consideration every month, you can become a patron. Different levels of patron include different levels of commitment from us to you, including being able to watch the show recorded live. We also have a small range of merchandise in our spring store, stickers to mugs and t-shirts. If you don't have any spare cash and we do completely understand, then you can help us by following for free from a podcast player to receive every show as they're released and by liking and rating the show in whatever way your podcast supplier lets you. Don't forget to like and subscribe, everyone. If you've done all of that, and some of you do, uh, so thank you very much, then the last thing you can do is to recommend us to your friends or colleagues. Thank you, everybody that does. Much, much appreciated. Absolutely. New new car news. New new car news. Uh, we're not talking about the Renault 5 this week because everybody else is talking about the Renault 5. We'll probably don't chat about it next week, I think. But the only other vehicle that seems to be in Geneva uh, is the new Dacia Spring. This is the sort of Mark II Dacia Spring, and it uh, will be, well, it currently is, Europe's cheapest electric car. couple of things to note on this. First of all, it's currently built in China. But Dacia is considering, Dacia and Renault are considering bringing it, uh, bringing manufacturing back to Europe because there may not be the economies uh, building in China that there, there previously were at the time it was it was started and planned. Cough, trade war, cough. <laughs> yes. The Spring is Europe's third best-selling electric car after the Tesla Model 3 and Model Y. And the idea is that it will be launched in the UK in right-hand drive form later this year year mm-hmm. it's what is it it's a b segment hatch really isn't it yeah jack, jacked up b segment segment hatch yeah obviously at that price point there are some compromises to be aware of uh the launch price being about fourteen thousand three hundred and eighty five pounds uh, or sixteen thousand eight hundred euros mm-hmm. and one silly thing i well something i saw somebody getting really exercised about is that the steering wheel position was not adjustable but there we go uh, maybe we've all become blasé about how adjustable all our steering wheels are nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yes. So we're going a bit old school. But um, for that price, what you're going to get is realistic range of about 110 to 120 miles, but you will only be able to charge it on a slow charger, so that's up to 30 kilowatts per hour on that front. I mean, I mean we say that, but we did tour the whole of the UK at, at that yeah, kind of range Yeah, but that was just you and speed. me yeah yeah and how many days were 
significantly longer than 12 hours. Yeah, that, but it was, ex- that was extremely weird. We were going for extreme. However, if somebody is moving for the first time, I mean, all we wanted to do was just get around Britain. But if you're trying to use this as a replacement for an existing vehicle, you just need to be aware of the compromises and the changes in your behavior and what you do. That's what I'm trying to get at. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying be aware there are compromises on the back of this mm-hmm. because it's 17 grand. Yeah. You know, it's not 35 to 40 grand. Yeah. We also had a small debate before we started recording the show about the, about the spring where Andrew was pointing out that you could go up a size of Dacia to a, a internal combustion engine one for only a couple of thousand pounds more. And I was pointing out that actually the actual price is not really so important because these are all going to be leased or on the monthlies on the French low cost scheme. Uh, or something similar, right? You know, the fact that that if you're in sort of uh, extra urban Europe, uh, most places you have off-street parking, you have the ability to charge, the electricity grid can can sustain the low power charges that are required for this. It's not quite such a big deal. With such a small battery, then even at a low speed, it's going to charge relatively quickly. If you have off-street parking, this is perfect because it's that slow overnight stuff. Great. You'll always be topped up. Realistically, uh, and they say it themselves at the bottom of this Autocar article, the uh, product leader is talking about that they uh, they think their prime customers will be people mostly in their 50s if what happens in Europe continues. It's a second car, yeah. but it's for practicality of popping around locally or for commuting. So the 110 to 120 miles makes a lot of sense. And that, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. I am delighted that we're finally seeing an EV that is under 20 grand. Yeah. Because that's been a problem for so long. And I know yesterday a whole host of stuff came out, thanks to Parker's, showing what nearly new EVs cost mm. and, how, and how low the prices have come now. But that is part of the problem with what I was trying to say to you before we went on air about the PCPs is the PCP's monthly rates will be up now because of the residual values dropping down because you have one loose cannon in the market who others follow who changes the price and destroys residual values Fair. on a whim. Yeah. And that has to be borne in mind because somebody has to pick up that tab somewhere along the lines, which so many of the people saying, oh, look at the price, it's brilliant. Forget, somebody has to pick up the tab for this somewhere in the whole cycle because we can't just make things for nothing and expect car companies to continue to make a profit and develop further. But I love the idea of this car and what it is aimed at. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Let's move to a less cuddly EV, shall we? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm trying to work out whether the front end is the MG5 or whether... (laughs) Harsh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the ID7 Torah, so another, or another, but or more talking about an estate electric vehicle. And this is based on the ID7, which has got a lot of praise from reviews. And this seems to continue it further on because there is basically a ton of space in this thing. Uh, there's going to be 605 litres with the seats up. Drop them down and you're looking at 1,700 odd litres. Up, if that's if you load up to the roof. The Passat Estate, which has only just been launched, and it seems like this is the electric version of it, 
has 1920 litres of luggage with the rear seats folded down. Mm. So it's pretty close, really. Um, and it shows where they've hidden the batteries because proportionately, it doesn't look like it's an SUV they've tried to keep as low as possible. It does look like a normal car. Yeah. I liked you mentioned the Passat, uh, the Volkswagen Passat just there as well. Um, and I like the following reveal, uh, Imelda Labbe, who is, is listed in this motion research article as being a member of the Volkswagen Board of Management, said, The new ID7 Tourer is a perfect estate model, especially for families and long-distance drivers. With plenty of space and a high level of comfort, it impresses fully electrically with long ranges, which does make you wonder why they bothered with the Passat. Well, because there's a complete slowdown in the market. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Don't forget that. Don't forget, I mean, if, if you read the right headlines, we're told that the EV market is tanking completely. <sighs> Because they seem to forget the whole car market is not really doing wonderful. No, exactly. And EVs are part of said market. <laughs> it is true. There's going to be a range of up to 425 miles when fully charged. It will allow uh, rapid charging of 200 kilowatts. So that means if you if the environmental conditions and the charger allow... Insert caveats here. Yes, it can go from 10 to 80% capacity in 30 minutes, which is a stop the toilet, coffee, back to the car. Easy peasy. I can see these being used by fleets, yeah. particularly. Uh, ID7, uh, I can see these replacing an awful lot of Model 3 and Model Y, to be perfectly honest. As you say, on fleets. And hopefully SUVs. Oh, well, yeah, whatever. Just, I think people will choose them anyway. But the reviews of people who've driven them so far have been incredibly positive. I mean, certainly from the ID7. I imagine the tour is going to continue that. Yeah, this is really where the ID range should have been whenever it was first launched. Uh, in terms of quality, yeah, I, I want, I, I would like to try the ID Seven because I wonder whether it is the relief from initial reactions to the ID Three or whether it really is that good. I suspect it's both. <laughs> yeah, I suspect it's a bit of both. To be honest, speaking of uh, related vehicles, Cupra, probably say that is going to add a hot new addition to the Bourne range with the 322 brake horsepower Bourne VZ. It brings 240 kilowatts, uh, which is 40% more power than the regular E-Boost model. Uh, it gives you a 0 to 62 time of just 5.7 seconds. It includes chassis upgrades for a more dynamic drive and some visual updates. That means different wheels and some other bits and pieces. So lots of tweaks to the suspension, some tweaks to the standard battery pack increasing the usable capacity for example and making sure that it can it can charge and all the other all the other things that are needed for that other upgrades include a larger a 12.9 inch touchscreen a 10 speaker sennheiser sound system and it's matt allen on this evpowered.co.uk article says the climate and volume controls are now illuminated so you can use them in the dark a move cooper rather boldly claims is retro we'd go with safer which I think is, is quite a good quite a good line. There are no confirmation of UK pricing or ultimate specification just yet. That will come in the summer and they'll be launched in the UK in the third quarter of 2024. Mm-hmm. It looks good. Seems to be that green is the colour for the sporty models now, after the MG4, now the Cupra. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, it's yeah, a nice colour. Green cars are nice, yeah. Right, I will now stick with EVs, possibly with the range extender, and take us to Ineos and their Fusilier, which is an all-electric, they've decided to ape the look of the G-Wagon this time, rather than the old Defenders, or classic Defenders, depending on 
what you're doing these days. It could probably be described as being a derivative design. Yes, that, those words. Yes. There's an article linked from Top Gear which goes on at great length of all the possible different ranks from the army that the Ineos range, if it continues to expand, could use, which is all good fun. There are not that many details about this. Um, it looks fine. It's a bit smaller and a bit lower than the Grenadier. There's a range extender because there's been a lot of mutterings from Ineos about how what what compromises or what problems there are with EVs, so they've done that. Again, we'll wait to see when it comes out. I presume it'll be as competent as the Grenadier is. Yeah. Obviously, those they will be in, in keeping with the Britishness of, of Ineos Automotive, uh, then they are being uh, developed uh, in Austria uh, and will be built in Austria by Magna as well. But actually, as it's smaller, they may be looking to get the urban buyer now. Yes. Because as we know, this is the only place SUVs must go, is, is in towns and cities. Yes. Uh, the, the, the images available are, are all basically the same picture, same rendering in different colours, as well as some pictures of Sir Jim standing beside some of them, uh, I noticed from the... Which are available, but Top Gear haven't decided to use them. Right, do you want to round out uh, some new, new car news with some really quite depressing news, actually? Well, we've tried to be incredibly positive this this, this show. It's been generally relatively decent news this week. Yes. Uh, but then this one here was the one that made us both go, Oh, no. Hyundai uh, have, unfortunately, axed the i30N and the i20N in Europe, um, with the Ionic 5N uh, going to be... Uh, replacing it. I'm sure that the 6N will toddle along in good time. I mean, I, I have a very soft spot for the i30N. It's uh, a car I've covered many, many thousands of miles uh, across Europe and the UK in. Uh, some of them at speeds which would definitely get me into a lot of trouble in the UK, but perfectly normal in Germany. Um, I spent a little bit less time in the i20N, but the, the i30N, I, I yeah, its ability to get me from the back end of Germany to Heathrow in a ridiculously quick time was not to be sniffed at, mm. as well as crossing Luxembourg and all sorts of stuff in i30N fastbacks and things like that. So it was a real shame. But yes, just not the demand across Europe, sadly. Well, it's also legislation. And legislation, but legislation meaning that, that, that it was, uh, yeah, not necessarily a possible thing for people to buy. Well, in my grim northern town, there's three i30Ns and there's three i20Ns, one of which is used as a learner driver vehicle. I'm not kidding you. This, yeah. I mean, why not? You just, yeah. You just turn it to eco mode. So you do. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, I have a very soft spot for both these models. They are some of my favourite cars I've driven, thanks to the podcast. Mm. And I just wish I could afford to buy buy them now because I would have I would have one in a shop I uh, looked at buying Kona in over here at one point and then thought well I can still get that in Europe so I didn't mm. but Kona in's fun as well good cars looking forward to trying the the Ionic 5 Emma at some point yeah yeah sure people do say good things about it brings us to points of interest Andrew yes points of interest or Alan's corner of the show I'm afraid this week uh, now the lunchtime read you would swear was written by Alan, 
Um, there is a Bradley in the name. Yeah, so written by Bradley Brownell. So I don't, I don't know whether this is pseudonym, and he's he's tried to be a little bit clever. But if you read it, you would swear that it is Alan. If you've ever heard him talk about any of the retro nine elevens that have taken a modern Porsche and what he th- feels is butchered them and made them unobtainium for him when he's just about in a position to be able to afford one. Yeah, three or four times. Yes, uh, this is so. This is an article on Jalopnik by Bradley Brownell, and he's talking about how pretty much how tedious it is that people are buying up all the the nine six fours, which was always a always a rare nine eleven model, and they're making them look like sort of careers from the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, and it's really yeah. I mean, he goes through and he runs through and he, he says basically what I think, but he's far better worded saying, you know, how singers are, are good, they're well built, they're nice, but they've become a bit of a a bit of a thing and that we should stop using them, stop stop ruining uh, 964s by by trying to make them mimic something that they're not. And I agree. So there's a good few minutes in there. <laughs> it's true. Uh, List of the week this week is the Autocar slideshow. Highs and lows of the rotary engine. Uh, which is not just a slideshow. It's not the normal list of the week, but it's it's an interest. But it, it's it's almost a lunchtime read, to be perfectly honest, because it does go through quite a lot of the history of rotary engines. But it's also interesting which vehicles it's been put into uh, over the years. I mean, I owned an RX-8, and I would happily own another rotary engine vehicle, despite the fact that it went through. It, it, the first engine went fat at 30-something thousand miles. I would own a rotary again if I could own it from new and always known how it had been looked after and treated and maintained. Mm. But yeah, it's, this is a really interesting one. So any, any vehicles that you were sub- particularly surprised had used or experimented with the, the rotary engine, Andrew? Uh, particularly surprised, yes, actually. Because there are a lot. I, I, I learnt a lot here. I mean, there's a couple of cars that I, I'd love to pick that are Mazdas, but I'm not, I'm not choosing that because that is what we expect, to be fair. But, for me, it was, uh, and I'm just trying to find it on the, hang on a moment, gone too far, because there's so many, I am going to say one that I did think was utterly gorgeous is the the Mazda RX 500 is. So you said, well, no, I'm not going to choose a Mazda, so you've chosen a no, Mazda. No, 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 but that's, that's not the one that I'm surprised at. The one I'm surprised at is the Mercedes C 111. Oh, well, I knew that because I've seen the car, but yeah, yeah, it's it's very cool. So that's their experimental sports car that was first appeared, according to this article, first appeared in 1969. Yeah. And it had 120, sorry, 280 brake horsepower, three rotor, and then a later 350 brake horsepower, quad rotor. But then in, uh, after that, Mercedes put conventional piston engines in. Yeah, they had a bunch of, the, of those. Uh, the C111 is just a very cool car in its own right. Yes, and I've, I've, I've named two cars that look quite similar and are incredibly 70s. Yes. They, they couldn't be more 70s, to be honest. I think the fact is painted bright orange as part of that. Uh, but very, <laughs> both very cool cars. Is there one on there that you were caught by surprise? Um, Mr. Know Many Things? No, because I kind of the history knew it of all. Cars. <laughs> but I do think the Citroen B- GS Birotto, the uh-huh. Birotto one, is, is very cool. And of course, still yeah. a soft spot for the RX-8, both the best and worst car I have ever owned. <laughs> Fabulous when it works. Do 1,000 miles a day easily. 
And then sometimes it would just strand you at petrol stations and not start again. So it was great. <laughs> it lucky was very driving. much lucky to driving. Uh, in between the bad bits, it was awesome. Okay, well, I'll, let's uh, round out with the end finally of a brand that has had a reputation for susceptible reliability, which is perhaps unfair, definitely unfair nowadays. And that is uh, from Jalopnik, an article titled Hang Out in Alfa Romeo's Secret Vault for the Next Hour. It's by Bradley Brown again. I, I swear it's not me who's doing these. Yeah, because no, that would be uh, Bradley, and then we'd spell Alan backwards or something, and then we'd know it was you. <laughs> Uh, but there is a, a really nice article as well as a video that is, I think, 48 minutes long where they tour around Alfa Romeo's uh, museum and you get to see some amazing, amazing vehicles. This is wonderful. I love that I could spend many times watching and rewatching. So we've given you three lunchtime reads in one one week, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> Your lunches will be filled with everything yes, car related. Yeah, it really is three. To, as I say, it really is basically three. Uh, th- three lunchtime reads this week. So don't say we're not good to you, basically. Yeah. Uh, that's it for this week, isn't it? I would say. Yeah, I have just about apologies for any any bits that, 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 any bits of note blowing and stuff that, that make it into the edit. Sorry about that. That's us. So don't, folks, uh, forget that between now and next week, you can give us any feedback. Share your thoughts with the show at Motoring Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook, and on the contact page of motoringpodcast.com, the hub of all our activities. Remember, you can support us financially via Patreon and please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing. Uh, Andrew, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me is either via Twitter or Mastodon. And if you search for Crack Windscreen, you should find me there. And Alan, if people would like to know more pain and joy of your RX-8 ownership, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you personally? If you do really want to stir up those memories, uh, you can get in touch via Twitter and Blue Sky, where I'm at AJP Bradley. That's B-R-A-D-L-E-Y. Uh, we'll be back next week, but until then, I've been Alan Bradley. I've been Andrew Clues. And safe motoring.